you know, in the case of early restorationists, they argued that um, rather than giving more land to white settlers, that land could be given to bison restorationists. Um, bison restorationists who were overwhelmingly rich white settlers. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire. It is safe to say that the people who colonized what became the United States have done and continue to do a lot of environmental damage. We've cut down forests, drained swamps, and hunted some species almost to extinction. In the past 50 years or so, though, there's been a focus on ecological restoration. The idea that we can bring back some of the habitats we've destroyed, that we can bring ecological communities back together and recreate an ecosystem as it once was before we cut it down, drained it out, and skinned it. But where did this idea that we could restore an ecosystem come from? For a long time, people focused on preserving pockets of wilderness, not restoring previously blasted landscapes. No one person woke up one morning and said, aha, I know, I'm going to restore this swamp. No. Instead, the idea of ecological restoration has been building from ladies studying wildflowers to hunting men who wanted to hunt more bison. And this history, this confluence of ecological ideas has been brought together by my guest today. Laura Martin is an assistant professor of environmental studies at Williams College. She has written for Scientific American, Slate, Environmental History, Environmental Humanities, Trends in Ecology and Evolution, and other publications. And her new book is called Wild by Design, The Rise of Ecological Restoration. Laura, welcome. Thanks so much, Bethany. I was wondering if we could start by determining or defining what exactly ecological restoration really is, because I think it, it can be a lot of things. <laughs> it can be a lot of things. And in the book, in Wild by Design, I'm thinking specifically about ecological restoration as opposed to environmental restoration. So efforts to kind of undo human-caused harm to other species, to non-human species, and efforts specifically to reconstitute or create new assemblages of groups of species. So in thinking about ecological restoration, we're really thinking about those biotic interactions, those relationships between species and bringing back either a single species or a group of species. So this is kind of narrowing down what, um, you know, because environmental restoration is a really big umbrella that can include things like taking down dams in order to restore hydrological regimes, getting rid of toxins in soils, right? And while by design, I'm focused specifically on ecological restoration. And this is a, 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 a practice and an idea that the International Society for Ecological Restoration uh, defines as uh, an effort to assist the recovery of an ecosystem that has been degraded, damaged, or destroyed. So the key kind of verb in there is to assist. The idea that humans are helping other species and kind of collaborating with them to recover. So when you say um, kind of assembling these groups of species, we are not talking about novel assemblages. We are talking some sort of historical 
assemblage, and we're going to get back to the concept of historical assemblage, but we're not talking like new stuff. Yeah, well, so you're hitting on one of the key debates that's happening right now in ecological restoration. And this is the question of whether scientists and land managers should try and assemble historically occurring groups of species, or whether they should select species to put back into the landscape based on what we project the climate will look like in the future as anthropogenic climate change accelerates and, um, and, and becomes prevalent. And so it was the case that and I track this, this history, this, this arc in Wild by Design, early in ecological restoration, restorationists weren't particularly concerned with historical baselines. They were concerned with particular species that were charismatic or that were important to, say, um, hunting cultures, right? They, they were interested in bringing back species to a damaged landscape and kind of just generally interested in life flourishing in those places. They weren't so concerned with historical baselines. It wasn't really until the 1980s that in the United States, the idea of bringing back a historical ecosystem really gained hold and became popular in natural areas management in the work of, of organizations like the Nature Conservancy. And so starting in the 1980s and 1990s, you get large-scale efforts to understand which species used to be on the landscape and to return those species to the landscape. And this is where we start to see the rise of invasive species management and efforts to get rid of invasive non-native species. And a lot of environmental money being put towards that cause. And that's something that surprised me in researching this book. I expected that the effort to recreate historical ecosystems is something that, that would have existed for decades now, but it, it turns out really to be a 1980s thing. And I have a few different um, you know, hypotheses as, as to why that is, but ecological restoration has always had this sense of undoing harm and in that sense returning to a past state but not necessarily returning to a pre-colonial state so so starting in the 1980s a lot of ecologists and land managers tried to restore ecosystems specifically to a pre-1492 um, kind of composition and so the, the book kind of looks at why this shift occurred in restoration and why the historical baseline idea is now being challenged by ecologists who are promoting the idea of novel ecosystems or the idea that the groups of species that are found together today are unprecedented and maybe can't be undone. Um, so a great example is the emerald ash borer in um which is which is just hitting where i live in vermont in new england in the united states and it um is a species that was introduced uh it, it was first introduced i believe into michigan and has been spreading across the uh, north and east um 
of the United States. And as it's been spreading, it's been killing ash trees. This is an insect that, that burrows into ash trees. Um, the ash trees eventually die and ash trees are a really prevalent species in a lot of the forests around where I live. And so all of a sudden uh, there's all of these dead trees, which is of course a problem for the, the many species that depend on ashes to live. And it's changing the forest composition and, the, and it's creating gaps in the canopy too and, and creating space for new tree species. However, uh, scientists at, at Cornell have found that they, the, the kind of boom in emerald ash borers has also, and, and of these dead trees, is also creating new habitat for woodpeckers. So there's unprecedentedly greater numbers of woodpeckers that birdwatchers and conservationists really care about in Vermont right now and other Northeastern states. And so perhaps getting rid of the emerald ash borer, you might also harm woodpeckers. And so novel ecosystems create all of these really interesting and complicated trade-offs for restoration. And what would it mean to try and get rid of the emerald ash borer, which of course land managers are trying to do unsuccessfully. Um, so some restoration ecologists are arguing now that these sort of entrenched introduced species should be accepted as now part of the landscape and ecosystem and that that restoration money should be spent elsewhere, maybe on species that are just starting to get established or species that are declining. Um, right. But so in all of in all of these questions about how to manage species is this this underlying tension and this is really the the i think the the title of the book wild by design signals this 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 tension that is that is inherent within ecological restoration which is is it possible to manage something to be wild isn't there a kind of we think of these things as opposites. We think of managed landscapes as gardened landscapes, as kind of domesticated landscapes, as something totally different from wild landscapes or wild species. But restoration ecologists for decades now have been trying to intervene in ecosystems and trying to manage species in order to maintain or restore their wildness itself. Um, so, so this is something that the the kind of the threats to species have have changed, of course, over the course of the twentieth um, and twenty first centuries. But this question of how to intervene in the lives of other species while kind of respecting their autonomy has has remained constant in in restoration ecology. Um, as you mentioned, you know, when people are thinking about restoration, often they think about getting rid of invasive species and, you know, people, what I find personally kind of most difficult about this concept is what are you trying to restore the habitat to? So for example, you know, getting rid of the emerald ash borer might actually be kind of bad for some woodpeckers, um, but also often especially in, in kind of original ecological habitat restorations in like the 80s and 90s, there was this idea of like, 
basically restore the habitat to what it was like before white people. But in fact, the habitats we are restoring were often managed to varying degrees by indigenous groups who were then forced off the land in the name of conservation or preservation. (laughs) Um, How are modern ecological restorationists trying to take indigenous peoples and indigenous land management into account? Because there is this kind of concept of managing for wildness. How does that play in? Yes. So in Wild by Design, I argue that this idea of restoring to a a pre-colonial baseline is itself perpetuating a a pernicious myth that, as you said, this this idea that uh, landscapes and ecosystems in the United States um, and in in the Americas were, were unmanaged before Europeans arrived. And that is patently false and um, and a a racist assumption. And so there's been a number of, and I I should say that um, in addition to conservation and preservation being justifications for the violent removal and dispossession of, of land from Native American uh, uh, communities and governments that restoration was also itself used as a as a justification for the displacement um, of indigenous people and and that's something again that that is a a lesser known history I would say within within my field within environmental history it's now well documented that 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 preservation led to the dispossession of Native American land. So the establishment of national parks like Yellowstone, Yosemite, right? It was these lands were never unpeopled, were never um, unoccupied, and um, never ungoverned. And the white settlers had used the the argument that they were in order to to steal these lands and and set them aside for for white tourism mostly. Um, A parallel thing happened with the early establishment of wildlife restoration sites in the United States. And this is something that I I document in the first chapter of the book. The first wildlife restoration sites were were founded in the 19-teens by the American Bison Society, which is a whole, uh, there's a whole whole related a parallel track that we could talk about, which, you know, a lot of the founders of the American Bison Society were eugenicists and white supremacists. Um, But the land that they argued the federal government should set aside for wildlife restoration was land that the federal government was systematically, uh, it, it was tribal land that the federal government was systematically dismantling under the Dawes Act in an explicit effort to erode tribal sovereignty. And so the first couple of sites that constitute what is now the National Wildlife Refuge System in the United States were tribal lands um, that that were um, kind of parceled out and put toward um, toward restoration. And so um, it's only in recent years that restoration ecologists have 
have started to think about how to align human justice and social justice with ecological restoration. And so I end the book uh, with, with noting that just, just last year, um, in, in winter of, of 2021, the, um, the, the first site that was established by the American uh, Bison Society, the National uh, Bison uh, Range, was re-transferred, the, the, both the management and ownership of it was transferred back to the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes. And so now the, the tribal council is working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service on a transition from federal management, wildlife management, to tribal wildlife management. Um, and this is an effort, I argue, that is, is an example of, of wildlife conservation and restoration, it finally reckoning with the ways in which restoration is always political. And any effort to any, any decision about which species get to live and die in the landscape is a decision that, that people are making and that certain individuals are empowered to make and others are not. And so we need to think really hard about who gets to decide which restoration projects are pursued and where they're pursued and how they're pursued. And I also wanted to kind of go back a little bit because one of the important aspects of this book is that it distinguishes between restoration, preservation, and conservation, which I think many people who are not like in the world of these things might just be like, those all sound exactly the same to me. They are not. <laughs> um, can you kind of break down the difference between restoration, preservation, and conservation? Yes. And and this can get tricky, too, in the sense that the, the way that historians talk about conservation is not the same way that scientists talk about conservation. And so that, that that's an additional wrinkle in this distinction. Um, but U.S. environmental historians have, have you know, typically broken down 20th century environmental movements into two separate camps preservationists and conservationists. And in this kind of dichotomy, preservationists were people who wanted to set aside land to protect scenic areas, to protect recreation, or to protect um, later in the 20th century to, to protect species. And so this was, um, this is an idea, and it's still a very prevalent idea. Um, preservationists and imagine that they're taking land out of the economic system, that they're re reserving it um, and setting it aside and saying that um, people cannot live on this land, people cannot work on this land. There's, there's some exceptions to that, of course, but um, and, it's, and it's a gradient. But the, the number of protected areas, the number of preserved areas in the world has really skyrocketed in the past few decades. This is a, the idea of preservation is an early 20th century 
uh, American idea, but it's one that's been exported around the world. In the 1960s, there were approximately 1,000 protected areas worldwide. And today, that number is somewhere over 260,000 protected areas, encompassing something like 16% of the world's ice-free land area. So that's actually, you know, preservationists feel like that number is not enough. And um, the late biologist E.O. Wilson and, and others have argued that 50% of the world needs to be put into preservation in order to protect species, right? But, but if you stop to, to think about it, 16% is a lot. It's already a lot. And it's a really, I argue, kind of pessimistic and, and bleak view of the world to say that it's impossible for political change to occur, that the only way to save species from humans is to segregate them from humans, is to put them somewhere else and to not let people live with other species, right? And this, of course, can't be done. Um, there's, you know, setting, preserving half of the world would involve displacing millions of people um, from, from their land. And, and people, and preservationists like E.O. Wilson kind of have never addressed which people would would be impacted. Um, but the reality uh, is we know which people. Yes, exactly. And um, and so already the 16% is a lot and has um, uh, the journalist Mark Dowie and, and other people have shown that the preservation has led to what uh, the United Nations and other groups refer to as conservation refugees, that people have been kicked out of their um, communities and towns to protect non-human species. And this is a both obviously patently unjust and also an unsustainable way of, of trying to protect other species. So preservation is really this, um, right, this, this, this vision of setting aside nature from culture or people from other species. In contrast, conservation, as historians talk about it, is this movement that emerged during the progressive era, and it's what scientists refer to as wise use. Um, this idea that rationality and scientific principles can guide land management, and that it's possible to have working landscapes that still protect and maintain other species. Conservationists in this sense are usually concerned with species of economic value. So they might be thinking about how to harvest Douglas fir trees and replant them at a rate that they will be available to harvest in the future. A lot of fisheries management is this kind of conservation model where scientists are trying to model how many fish of a certain species can be harvested at a rate where they can maintain their population and, and continue to be harvested into the future. Um, so this is this idea is one in which human economies and nature are entwined with each other, but it's a it's a pretty anthropocentric view, a human-centered view with this idea that, and, and it's focused on 
species that are part of our economies. Um, and so that, that's preservation and conservation. Restoration is this third way that um, in Wild by Design, I, I show kind of emerged as an argument against preservation and as an argument against conservation. Unlike preservation, restorationists were interested in figuring out how to get species to thrive in all sorts of different landscapes, um, not just like including protected areas, but not just protected areas. And it really was this idea, instead of putting nature on one side and humans on the other side, it was this idea that humans would collaborate with other species to build habitats. Um, which of course is something that we we that humans do unintentionally all the time. Um, but this would be an intentional design of humans kind of designing habitats for other species. Um, and unlike conservation, restorationists were focused not only on species of economic value, but also species that are not harvested or not traded or not really, particularly cared about. I mean, so so a lot of early restorationists were focused specifically on prairie species and wetland species. And these were landscapes and habitats and, and species that were really undervalued in the early 20th century. Wetlands in particular were seen as wastelands, as places where as, as places that were unproductive for agriculture, places that people that kind of impeded travel and that places that people did not want to go and were certainly not going to sightsee um, the interesting plants and animals that live in wetlands, which is, it's, that's a really different story today, right? And in, in the last chapter of the book, I, I look at the restoration of the Florida Everglades which is a great example of this total pivot in how Americans and scientists have thought about wetlands, um, where the Everglades went from this, um, this, this type of ecosystem that the, that the public and scientists really kind of made fun of and did not um, see any value in to one where that's now a, a site of ecotourism. Right, where people go to see what mangroves and, and wetlands look like and to see all of the really cool bird and, and plant species that live in the Everglades, in part because of these large-scale restoration efforts that started in the 1980s. And I was also really struck when I was kind of reading the book and looking at the differences between restoration, preservation, conservation, it seems like they're more different than the different ways of kind of thinking about land. It also seems like it's a difference in philosophy and a difference in kind of the idea of where humans belong on a landscape. So like in conservation, the kind of conservation done and kind of, uh, I guess, embodied by Roosevelt, um, it was about conserving land for the most efficient use of humans. And as you mentioned, it's a very anthropocentric view, the idea that the land exists as a resource for people to use. Um, in preservation, the philosophy is very 
hands off the idea that the very presence of humans is harmful and will soil the wildness of a place. Mm -hmm. And then in restoration, there's still human involvement, but there's this idea that humans know how to build a good habitat and that it is our responsibility to kind of intervene for the good of wildness. And I was kind of wondering, is this a philosophical transition that has taken place over time um, and why you think that particular kind of change in thought has taken place. I think that, yes. So there is, there is at the, at the core, as you, as you um, framed it, this, this philosophical difference between these different approaches. And of course, you know, within every camp, there's, there, there are people who have complex views and these are kind of characterizations of the three different um positions, but it is the case that I would say that preservationists, conservationists, and restorationists have really different philosophies of responsibility and place responsibility. Think about human responsibility for non-human species quite differently. So preservationists would argue that humans have have a responsibility to get out of the way that the, the thing that humans need to do to protect other species and help them flourish and the responsible thing to do is to give them space for humans, our only visitors, right? Um, that's a very different view of responsibility than conservationists or, or wise use folk who, who would argue that humans have a responsibility to use science and economics to figure out the most efficient way to pursue both uh, economic growth and the existence of certain species, right? Restorationists have uh, yet a, a third philosophy of responsibility, and it's this idea that humans are responsible have have a responsibility for allowing non-human species to be wild where wildness does not necessarily mean the absence of humans right because i think that there is a a philosophy of wildness at play in preservation that is imagining wildness equals the absence of humans in restoration, that is not what wildness equals. Indeed, human land managers and human scientists are working to design to and create wild ecosystems, wild groups of species and individual wild species, um, if we think about captive breeding and, and re-release. And in pursuing this, they're they're hitting up against this tension that exists in thinking about management versus wildness or autonomy. And so the the trick of of restoration ecology is trying to figure out how to manage other species or intervene in the lives of other species in a way that respects their 
autonomy or kind of self determination. And of course, there's all sorts of fascinating, very specifically um, in the case of the um, United States, very specifically American ideas about self-determination that get, that get caught up in that idea as well. And I should say that ecological restoration looks different in different culture in different cultures in different countries. It is a, a culturally specific thing, and different um, different communities will have different ideas about what non-human life looks like. What um, relationships with non-humans look like and what flourishing for other species would look like. Um, and so it's not the case that, you know, so the, the pre-colonial baseline, for example, the 1492 baseline that we mentioned in, in the United States is a, is a pretty specific uh, thing. There's, there's a few other post-Anglo um, uh, settler um colonies that also have this, like, so Australia, for example, also has this, this kind of concern with, with restoring a pre-colonial baseline, um, and South, South Africa as well. But beyond the, um, kind of former English colonies, you don't really see that particular, um, kind of concern with reconstructing a, a, a pre-colonial baseline. And I argue that the, the problem with restoring species to a, a pre-colonial baseline is that it's kind of doing the work to undo the ecological effects of settler colonialism without doing the work of attempting to undo the political uh, and economic effects of settler colonialism. Um, and so it's not that I don't think, you know, I, I do think that efforts to restore native species are, are worthwhile, both um, kind of ethically and scientifically, but I think that there needs to be a, a deeper reckoning with the politics of those efforts and that restoration is broader than just a focus on native species, that there's a lot of other interesting work being done now in ecological restoration thinking about species flourishing more broadly. That's actually a thread that kind of comes throughout the book um, is kind of how ecological restoration, preservation and conservation really emerge. You know, we think of them now as these good things and they can be very good things, but like they emerge out of this strong settler colonialist mindset. And I, one of the things that really emphasized this for me, a lot of people kind of date the founding of the modern environmental movement to Aldo Leopold waking up one morning and being like, aha, and writing the Sand County Almanac. But you note that conservation, preservation, and restoration all emerge around the same time and particularly around the time of the Homestead Act which granted land to anyone who could claim it, anyone being settlers who were usually white. Um, and I was wondering if you could kind of detail as an example, how the Homestead Act kind of led to the founding of these movements. Yeah, and this is something I think that um, has been kind of underappreciated in, in 
um, environmental history and in scientific circles, just the, I argue it's, it's not a coincidence that these three environmental movements emerged with the Homestead Act. Each in its own way was an argument about land use and appropriate land use and was an attempt specifically to claim land under the Homestead Act. Um, and to argue, you know, in the case of early restorationists, they argued that um, rather than giving more land to white settlers, that land could be given to bison restorationists. Um, bison restorationists who were overwhelmingly rich white settlers. Um, yeah, they wanted more bison to hunt. Yes. They and, wanted bison to use bison. <laughs> yes. And so it's, I think, I think um, an increasing number of people know the, the history of um, bison slaughter in the United States and, and the ways in which that was an explicit federal policy um, of genocide, that it was an effort to um, kind of destroy a food source and, and um, spiritual source for different Native American um, uh, communities. But it's, um, you know, sobering to, to realize that restoration efforts were also part of the same settler colonial project. Um, that it was an effort that restored the bison rest early bison restoration was an effort to set aside land for the use of white hunters and white tourists who would come to see the bison and who would imagine themselves. There's a lot of also in this um, time period and also in the restoration work of, of the 1970s and 1980s, um, a lot of a lot of in work to create landscapes where visitors, presumably white visitors, could imagine themselves to be settlers of a previous generation. Um, and in the um, Wilderness Act and the, the kind of regulation in the National Park Service that comes along with that in the 1960s and 1970s, there's very explicit language about managing national parks to recreate a settler scene, to kind of recreate what this, this kind of um, lionized and mythologized view of what white settlers would have encountered, encountered on the landscape. Um, and that was the explicit goal of ecological management at that time. Um, it's something I think that, that we forget in the 2020s um, and I think it's important to understand this history as restoration becomes the kind of dominant environmental mode of environmental management worldwide. So today, I argue restoration is the, the most widespread and most influential mode of environmental management in the world. The, the UN uh, just the other year declared this to be the, the decade on ecosystem restoration. And governments through the United Nations are, are 
incentivized to do restoration and, and investing massive amounts in large-scale restoration projects. Um, it's there's not there's not great numbers, but it's estimated that governments and public and private organizations are spending billions of dollars per year on restoration, and um, this includes. You know, invasive species management and endangered species breeding. It also includes forest-based carbon offsetting, um, or the idea of uh, kind of replanting or newly planting trees in order to sequester carbon in order to try and offset um, greenhouse gas emissions. And 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 anyone who's who's purchased a plane ticket recently might have been presented with the the option of of buying carbon offsets in order this I, this idea that um, the the emissions from from your plane flight can be offset through the planting of trees, for example. Um, and this is a kind of a new idea in restoration that really only came about in the late 1980s. It's it's something I detail um, in the in the third section of the book, and it itself has this kind of colonial mindset, um, where um, the the where where forest based carbon offsetting allows countries in the global north to continue polluting, while countries in the global south are kind of positioned as um, nature reserves to kind of offset this pollution. Um, and the idea that ecological damage in one place can be offset or repaired with ecological restoration at a separate site is a really new concept. That is not something that we see kind of earlier in the history of ecological restoration, ecological restorationists up until the late 1980s, right? We're, we're thinking about undoing damage at a particular site with ecological care and reparation at that same site. And I was also, this is something that comes across in the bison section, uh, but also in many other sections throughout the book, I was really struck. And I think it's one of the things that people often overlook in early and even actually in some ways in modern environmental movements, the amount of killing that's involved. And I'm not just talking about bison. Um, like this is a way to manage ecosystems for humans. So for example, there was mass killing off of predators for a very, very long time. Um, and, you know, that has now changed and we now, some people feel very differently about predators on the landscape. Um, but it's also interesting that now there is the rise of this concept of invasive species. And those also need to be killed. You know, a lot of times it's, you know, ripping up weeds or, you know, killing specific bugs. Um, but certainly in countries other than the United States, that also includes large amounts of killing of vertebrate animals, um, for example, rabbits um, in Australia. <laughs> um, and so I was actually wondering if you could talk about how killing off predators, that view, which was very popular in the beginning as a way to kind of manage for increased buffalo and deer and things that people wanted, began to shift 
and became kind of a, you know, don't do this, it's bad for the ecosystem. But at the same time, we're now seeing a shift to kill these non-native species instead. (laughs) So how does that kind of mental shift take place? This is a this is a question that really got me started researching this book project, the Wild by Design. My first career, you know, I'm a historian now, but my my first career was in ecology. I was a I was working as a, a wetlands ecologist and was really astounded at the scale of killing involved in wetlands restoration. So I was working on plant species and learning about and contributing to the massive efforts to dump herbicides with helicopters on wetlands on the east coast of the United States to try and control uh, just a few different introduced non-native species. And tons of money is spent on, on these efforts. And it is the, um, you know, poisons, biocides are being released into the environment to try and get rid of these couple of unwanted species like um, non-native ecotypes or or varieties of Phragmites australis or or common reed, um, which is the the species that I was working on um, as an ecologist. And I was just so, you know, as it was a revelation to me to, to learn and participate in the killing of certain species in order to try and save or promote other ones. And it certainly was the case that in large patches of Phragmites, it was really difficult for other plant species to thrive and to establish um, just because they, they're so prolific and they take up so much space. Um, and they, they have these really elaborate rhizome structures that make it difficult for, for other plant species to germinate in them. And there's the question of, you know, do non-native plants support as many animal species and insect species as native plants do? And, um, you know, evolutionary ecologists would argue that native animals and insects evolved to to live with native plants. And so that that's why native plants are more important and more valuable, that they would be able to support a more diverse ecosystem. Um, but that is not necessarily the case. Um, and nevertheless, there are these really large scale killing projects involved in, in the work of trying not to kill valued species. Um, and we see this too in just the, the arc of ecological management in the United States. Um, so um, in, in the book, I look at, in, in one chapter, I look at the, the history of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's management of predatory species. And it is a wild transformation that that happens in the Fish and Wildlife Service from the primary. And I think that that often today people don't realize that this history because the Fish and Wildlife Service is responsible for administering the Endangered Species Act. They do a lot of amazing work. 
with captive breeding and, and re-release of endangered species and, and protecting endangered species and blocking international uh, trade and trafficking of endangered species, right? We associate the Fish and Wildlife Service with protecting endangered species um, and with restoring habitats, um, all sorts of different habitats from, from wetlands to, to deserts. Um, but the primary purpose of the Fish and Wildlife Service until the 1970s was killing predators. And they, along with the Department of Agriculture, just killed millions and millions of predators. Um, some that some, some which will be familiar to listeners, like wolves and coyotes, um, species that are still killed in the name of environmentalism. I was going to say lots of coyotes are still killed every year, tons and tons. Yeah, yeah. Others and, you know, others that are um, more surprising, like owls. Um, there was a real effort to kill all owl species. Um Predator, smaller predators, um, bobcats, right? Um, and at first this was done with guns and then there was a move towards using poison as a more efficient and um, at the time argued more humane method to kill animals. Um, and it really was not until the passage of the Endangered Species Act that the Fish and Wildlife Service thought about restoring species. And it um, was put in this very awkward position with the passage of the Endangered Species Act because suddenly the, there was a new office in the Fish and Wildlife Service dedicated to the restoration of many of the species that the federal government itself had been responsible for decimating. So the federal government is now working to restore wolves and, and reintroduce them in specific, um, on specific federal lands when it was the, the same agency, the Fish and Wildlife Service, and it, its, its predecessor um, that was responsible for extirpating wolves on those lands. I was also struck kind of through the book, um, both by the eradication of undesired species. And sometimes those are invasive species. Sometimes they are predatory species. They are undesired. Um, and how eager people seem to be to do this in the name of ecological restoration. And I was actually wondering if this, if people really go in for this because it's something that we can do. And ecological restoration is kind of an active pursuit, you know, let's do the thing, right? Let's rip out the weeds <laughs> to do the thing. And I wonder how much of a role do you think the idea of action kind of plays into the concept of ecological restoration? Yeah, so I argue in the book that one of the, that invasive species killing is one of the unforeseen and un- intended consequences of the Endangered Species Act for bizarre administrative reasons. So prior to the um, passage of the, the amendments to the Endangered Species Act in the 1970s, environmentalists and environmental organizations were able to 
work with endangered species to try and restore them. And that's what a lot of their efforts were geared towards. Once the Endangered Species Act was passed, only the Fish and Wildlife Service had permission to manipulate and work with endangered species and um, any, any private citizens or organizations would have to apply for permits through a really rigorous process in order to work with endangered species. So nonprofits like the International Crane Foundation, um, which was working to uh, breed and reintroduce whooping cranes and other endangered cranes, like suddenly could not do easily do that work anymore. But here was a, a group, an increasingly large professional identity and group of people who wanted to do something to help nature, to help restore nature. And so working with imperiled and endangered species was no longer legal. And that, that leaves the question of what to do. And so I think this is one, not the only reason, but one reason why environmentalists turn toward killing non-native species in the 1980s, because this was something that was permitted to do, that was illegal to do. And that was a different way, rather than kind of increasing, directly increasing the number of um, endangered or threatened species by breeding them or introducing them into a new place. Instead, you could try and clear out the landscape of competitors. Um, it, you know, it's not the case that suddenly there were more invasive non-native species in the 1980s. And that's why scientists turn and land managers turned their attention to them. It, it is this shift in, in the law and the shift in culture as well that, that happens in the 1980s. Well, and I also think it's, um, you know, it's about just wanting to do something. <laughs> as you mentioned, like I was thinking about this in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic and how people were so eager to do things like make masks kind of early on. Um, because otherwise, the only thing you really could do was nothing. You could stay home and you could do nothing. And that is just so anathema. We want to do the things. We want to fix it. <laughs> and, and we couldn't. Um, and so I, I feel like there's a lot of that kind of, you know, you're doing the thing. <laughs> you know, you're ripping out the evil Phragmites um, that, that kind of feels good, you know? For sure. And I think that that is something that is what makes ecological restoration hopeful. And that's ultimately, you know, we've, 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 we've talked a lot about the really problematic and um, kind of underappreciated colonial history of ecological restoration. But in concluding the book and at the end of, of doing this research, I am still arguing that restoration is a really promising and important mode of environmental management, that it, it has the capacity to incorporate human social justice while also striving to figure out how to act to help other non-human species to live. And it is, just, it, I think what makes it so hopeful is 
the fact that it is active. It is choosing to intervene in the landscape, choosing to design a landscape or garden a landscape in this way that promotes wild species and promotes species wildness. And it, um, you know, I, I, I think that restoration is a really important topic right now because of the level of hopelessness and despair among environmentalists, among the students that I teach um, at Williams College, right? There's this, this sense that climate change, ocean acidification, habitat fragmentation, persistent pollutants, that these issues are so large scale that they involve so many people and that there's been so little response by politicians that that these are kind of intractable problems that there's that there's nothing to do except despair and give up hope um, and I think that restoration gives us an alternative path restoration says no we can do something and we can do something at a very small scale whether that's um, you know replacing, a patch of grass or a lawn with pollinator-friendly species, or whether no, that's we can do something on a very large scale, like the multi-million-dollar Florida Everglades restoration project. Well, on that incredibly hopeful note, which I think was really necessary, <laughs> Laura, thank you so much for being here. The book is a fascinating set of studies and it really linked together a lot of ideas in my mind. I really appreciated it. Thanks so much. It was great to talk. If you'd like to learn more about Laura Martin and her book, Wild by Design, The Rise of Ecological Restoration, we've got information on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. If this is your first time here, welcome. We're so happy to have you. And if this is your 604th time with us, welcome. You bring us so much joy. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show through your friendly neighborhood podcast app and leave us a review. It really does make a difference. You can also follow us on social media, and if you are so inclined, you can support us via our Patreon, where a small monthly donation can help keep this show and its hardworking producers going. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 